a United DC-7 and a TWA L 1049 collided over the Grand Canyon, 128 people were killed. Before that, airspace was uncontrolled. Hmm. Basically, you had all this new emerging aviation coming out of World War II and, and airplanes and, and everybody was traveling and times were good, but airspace was uncontrolled. And they had the thing called scene avoid. That's how you flew. You went up, yeah, anybody could get in an airplane and go fly anywhere and no radios to talk people basically and control everything. You could go anywhere you wanted to go. You just kind of see and avoid it. But after that collision, suddenly we invested millions and millions of dollars in building, you know, long range radars, air traffic control centers. And in the 50 years, we've now come up with, you know, class A, B, C airspace with limited access, equipment requirements, pilot requirements. And we have TCAS for collision avoidance and an ADSB now. And, but essentially, collision avoidance is in the cockpit. TCAS put collision avoidance in the cockpit because back in the day when you flew around in a crowded airspace, you got told you have traffic two o'clock, four miles altitude unknown. Well, that took you a long time to scan mm -hmm. where that traffic was. And, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, now that we've got mode C and TCAS, now you, you look at a display in your cockpit and it shows you the altitude and direction you need to look to see that. And you're still seeing and avoiding, mm -hmm. right? And TCAS is giving help to airlines. You know, they tell you to descend and climb and all that. But, uh, but TCAS is, left to the situational awareness of the pilot. So, so when we talk about space situational awareness, the space situational awareness is our ability to understand where everybody is and where they're going. Not what they're doing, because that's like right. space domain awareness that the, the military, I like the term space domain awareness versus space situational awareness, because I think space situational awareness is not where it's supposed to be yet. It has to be on the part of the participants, the space actors, need to have space situational awareness. And that's, that's an element, fundamental thing. Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. I am Jason Kanigan, the founder of Cold Star Technologies and your host. I'm here with Mike Maloney. He is the founder of something called Satellite Design for Recovery. He's been on before. And as soon as we were done having that conversation, I was like, Mike, let's get back on for another one because we have more to talk about here. So today we're gonna to talk about the wacky world of space traffic management. Thanks for being here, Mike. Well, thanks for having me, I appreciate it. You bet. So something is dreadfully wrong. Something is rotten in Denmark and in space about satellite uh, tracking, space traffic management. What is it? Well, it's, it's a bit of a misnomer. It's aspirational, not definitional. We're, we're not in space traffic management. We're building space traffic management. And, and you can't have space traffic management without a whole other bunch of parts working together. And we're just not there yet. And the idea that I run across is that people understand that, oh, well, this should be all taken care of because we're launching all this stuff into space. We must therefore have space traffic management. And the answer is no, we're scrambling hmm. to get to the point where we have space traffic coordination. We, management is just far too much of a concept right now to consider that we have anything close to it. Hmm. Okay. And we, I've had other guests on this show before who are really into the physics of the tracking. And um, again, we, we've discussed this, but I want to repeat this for anybody who just happened to wander into this show uh, and hasn't seen any of those or listened to any of those episodes. Uh, you think, like, like you said, this stuff must be figured out already. And no, it doesn't even really exist. The physics is not right that's being used. Uh, remember Dr. Marie Bouja saying, look, they're designed as cannonballs, these satellites, the way that they're being tracked. Um, not, you know, uh, when was the last time you saw a satellite that looked like a cannonball that was round, right? Normally they're rectangular or something, cubic. So what, is, what was going on with old space um, in terms of a paradigm? Maybe let's begin with that, the way people were thinking or had been thinking about space. It's very important for people to understand that, that, that 
we, space was big in the day. There, mm-hmm. was, there was no worry. You threw stuff up there. Nobody, the guys who launched Sputnik did not worry about collisions. Mm-hmm. And they knew there was nothing else up there other than meteorites, and, and so they didn't worry about it. And so we did that for decades now, where you just launched it up there, and occasionally you'd look at it or track it, or you'd connect to it to, make it, to give it a command, or you'd look at what its orbit is to make sure it's in the right orbit. But you didn't worry about collisions, and, and mm-hmm. it was really crowded. And now that we've got so many more objects up there and so much more debris up there, um, the, the space what we have is called the Space Surveillance Network, which is a network of, of ground sites that track satellites. And, and it's never been built for this. It's been cobbled together from a bunch of different programs, missile defense and, and, and space surveillance and, and all that. This has not been something that's been sat down and designed from scratch to accommodate what we're doing. And they, they don't have the funding. They've never had the funding. And uh, we don't have a space surveillance network that's adequate for the task we have today, let alone the one we're looking in the future. And we don't have the computational power or the user interfaces or, or any of the tools we need, for example. And the Department of Commerce is looking to take this over from the Air Force. And, mm-hmm. the, and the Air Force doesn't want to really give up control. So this idea of this centralized master authority of, of allocating orbits where we don't even control the individual orbits of satellites and have no authority to move maneuver satellites or order maneuvers of satellites is it, so, so foreign a concept that it, it needs some sort of a structure by which we can talk about where we are and where we're going. Um, the, the natural tendency is to look at air traffic control, but air traffic control has had 50 years, 60 years of development to get mm-hmm. to refine to where the point is. And I'll talk a little bit more about that, about how we got there in air traffic control. But anyway, it, the problem is, is, is that we presume that there's this, controlling authority and we're launching all these satellites, but we're really still re- relying on the old paradigm of space is big hmm. and, uh, and we, we trust to luck and we're operating in the blind. And I can give many examples. Obviously the Iridium Cosmos collision is, is one of those examples where we had a maneuvering satellite that, that was impacted with a dead object. And you'd think, well, that's not going to happen. And it did happen. So, you know, there's a flaw in the system when a maneuverable operating satellite is hit by debris and is destroyed and creates a big debris field. Obviously, we don't have space traffic management. Hmm. <laughs> okay. So, so some thinking about changing is really required here. And I know from being a change agent, change is hard. People hard. don't like it. <laughs> they want things to go on the way that they have been. And, uh, and they really need to come up with it themselves. That's the other takeaway, too. Like, they need to really get the picture on their own because that way they'll have buy-in. So we can, we can help them and maybe put ideas in front of them today, but it's, it's not going to happen. Um, you know, maybe who's going to mandate this stuff. So let's define space traffic management. You've got a number on our Google doc here. You've got a number of uh, capabilities here listed. Let's, let's kind of go through what you mean by okay. space traffic okay, so, management. So I, if I give you a resource to manage, the <laughs> first question you would like, ask is well how much is there to manage what it what how much where what is it you know that i'm trying to manage well we're coming into the game a little late because we've given so much of its capacity to debris that's un- basically unquantifiable other than in, in a statistical sense and everything in upper altitude is is declining into lower altitude so you've got mm-hmm. these objects are basically shrapnel you know raining down on lower object lower earth objects and uh, and so they they have to dodge all of that, the stuff that's operational, the stuff that's dead just collides. You know, if it hits each other, it creates more debris fill. Obviously, that's how we got the several hundred thousand of the millions of objects we have in space today. So uh, the, the question is, this is a globally shared resource. This is not something that 
and we can go in the whole idea of how we divvied up the airspace and sovereign airspace and how we control our airspace. It's defensible. That's basically why, um, you know, if we don't want you in there, we'll shoot you down. Um, and then there's an altitude above which we said, okay, we can't shoot that down. So that's, you know, open airspace, although not everybody agrees with that too. Some certain equatorial countries still claim geosynchronous orbital slots is theirs. Um, they can't obviously enforce that, but that's their opinion. Um, and so it's a global resource. And so we unilaterally grab this resource and put our low earth orbiting objects up there because we can. Um, and so if we wanna have true space traffic management, we need a global managing system that allocates orbits and actually controls orbits. Cause today all we do is coordinate frequencies, right? I mean, okay. it's all about orbital radio use and frequencies and not the orbits itself. So space traffic management says we're gonna control orbits and where physical things are moving through physical space. But really what we're coordinating is frequencies and because of the physics of orbits, satellites meander all over the place. Hmm. Yeah, and there's some <laughs> some big problems there. Um, and I think the air traffic control uh, system is is interesting, but I I don't think it works here. Uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll have to explore that. But right now, how are we measuring that capacity and utilization? You've mentioned radio frequency, but what else? I mean, there's nothing to stop uh, the Americans putting up a satellite at 400 miles or something or kilometers up there, and then the the Russians putting one up right in that same orbit. It's one of the uh, space traffic management exercises that I posted is, is if you imagine that, uh, and I used Iridium as an example, they're my favorite, favorite talking point for debris um, for a lot of reasons. But if you were to, uh, if somebody were to say, I'm going to launch another satellite constellation like Iridium at their altitude because I want to have the same coverage. Um, how, would you, how would you enforce that coordination if it was, you know, somebody from the United States wanting to do it, the FCC would do that. And then you would force Iridium to coordinate. How, who would compensate Iridium for the coordination that they would have to do? And then how would you synchronize these two constellations? And if somebody else wanted to do it, say China or Russia wanted to do the same thing, uh, how would you enforce cooperation between those two constellations to ensure they didn't collide? Or you simply say, well, don't launch to that altitude, in which case you ceded that orbital altitude to Iridium because they were a first mover and, and they now own that altitude because nobody wants to coordinate with them and they don't want to coordinate with anybody else. So that's kind of a great exercise of, of where does space traffic management get its uh, sort of like legitimacy from and, and then how does it enforce it? And then what do you do when you're, let's say we manage this resource and then we over allocate it. Mm -hmm. What's our recourse? You know, what's, how, how, do we, how do we say, okay, well we screwed up, let's uh, deorbit half your satellites. It's like, I'm not deorbiting half my satellites. Well, yeah, because the probability collision has become too great because of some other event you know, that we couldn't foresee. Now you can't operate that many satellites at that altitude. And, and so th these are the kind of like really tough questions of space traffic management uh, of how you get a control over what the utilization is going to be and then what the risks are. And generally the risks are risks from collisions and additional debris. Right, right. So we've got problems with space law. <laughs> who, who takes care of what where? Uh, and that, yeah, there's no sovereignty like that. Uh, there's measurement problems and tracking problems. We don't have that really. It's cobbled together, as you right. said. Uh, right. You know, there's like Leo Labs and that who are who are trying right. to take care of this stuff. Um, but I think people would be surprised to know how cobbled together this stuff is. And so, where where is the yeah the authority come from? Right, like nobody's going to bow to a nation. Um, and it can't be run, I don't think, as an air traffic control system where you do have that top altitude of, of uh, airspace. And then in, in there, between there and the surface of the earth is like this airspace where 
will hand off control, right, of that airplane as it goes through space. And so the, the air traffic control is okay for that moment, right? That plane is being controlled by that uh, controller, and then it's handed off to somebody else, and it keeps getting passed on. But I don't see that in space because the space law problem is in the way again, right? So well, I think, I, I think you the, see? The, the, the key here is, and this is one of the things, the, the elemental things, Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about air traffic control because yeah. something is one of my favorite things. Um, in, in June 30, 1956, uh, a United DC-7 and a TWAL-1049 collided over the Grand Canyon. 128 mm-hmm. people were killed. Before that, airspace was uncontrolled. Mm-hmm. Basically, you had all this new emerging aviation coming out of World War II and, and airplanes and, and everybody was traveling and times were good, but airspace was uncontrolled. And they had the thing called scene avoid. That's how you flew. You went up. <laughs> Yeah, anybody could get in an airplane and go fly anywhere, and there were no radios to talk to people, basically, and control everything. You could go anywhere you wanted to go. You just kind of see and avoid it. Um, but, but after that collision, suddenly we invested millions and millions of dollars in building you know, long-range radars, air traffic control centers. And in the 50 years, we've now come up with you know, class A, B, C airspace with limited access, equipment requirements, pilot requirements. Now we have TCAS for collision avoidance and an ADSB now, but essentially collision avoidance is in the cockpit. TCAS put collision avoidance in the cockpit because back in the day when you flew around in a crowded airspace, you got told you have traffic two o'clock, four miles altitude unknown. Well, that took you a long time to scan mm-hmm. where that traffic was. And, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, now that we've got mode C and TCAS, now you, you look at a display in your cockpit and it shows you the altitude and direction you need to look to see that. And you're still seeing and avoiding, mm-hmm. right? And TCAS is giving help to airlines. You know, they tell you to descend and climb and all that. But, uh, but TCAS is left to the situational awareness of the pilot. So, so when we talk about space situational awareness and, and this is one of the aspects of space traffic management is, and you've heard this many times from many other guests, is space situational awareness is our ability to understand where everybody is and where they're going. Not yeah. what they're doing, because that's like right. space domain awareness that the, the military, I like the term space domain awareness versus space situational awareness, because I think space situational awareness is exactly where, is not where it's supposed to be yet. It has to be on the part of the participants, the space actors, need to have space situational awareness and that's that's an element fundamental thing okay and that is interesting because my vision you're changing my mind about it uh before this talk was well why don't we just feed all the data into a central computer and it'll come up with all the hazards and hey you know here are the instructions you should move this way to avoid this or whatever right um, but it does tend to remove the responsibility from the actors. <laughs> so, the, the actors are ultimately yeah. responsible, yeah. And they, as they should be. Um, <clears throat> if you look at the, um, uh, the uh, SpaceX and Aeolus uh, near collision or incident uh, uh, not too long ago where uh, SpaceX claimed that they missed an email and so they weren't aware of the increased uh, probability of collision and the ESA made a big mm-hmm. deal out of the fact that they had moved their satellite because they decided that the risk was too great. For a collision, and, and this is this is exactly the opposite of what space situation awareness is. But when I was in Houston, I had an experience that was exactly, hmm. exactly represented what's going on in, in space traffic management. I was leaving, the, I was driving out of the hotel I was at, going to the conference, and I was turning into the frontage road, and a guy was coming off the highway, and he was changing lanes to the center lane. I was getting in the right-hand lane, 
and he drifted over on his way over. And I noticed that and stopped and avoided a collision. And he, he was distracted and he waved sheepishly his apology to me. And then we got to the light at the intersection. There was a traffic cop on the intersection. And I'm thinking to myself, this exactly dramatizes what we have as a problem with space traffic management. And here's a cop. He has perfect intersectional awareness, but no awareness of what went on just down the street. Mm. This guy who wasn't aware at the time of my entering the road and his drifting out of the lane represented the problem that SpaceX had with their satellite. They're operating an operating satellite. They're not paying attention to the collision probabilities, actively monitoring them. ESA is monitoring them. They're being a good uh, space citizen. And they're saying, hey, come on, let's coordinate what we're going to do. And SpaceX is like, well, we missed the email. We're, we're really sorry. We were looking at our phone um, while we were driving here trying to change lanes. Sorry. You know, it's like, no, no, no. This is not space situational awareness. Did you know that the small sat industry has a 40% and greater partial and full mission failure rate? That's terrible. And yet I find most people in the space industry try to treat this as if it's no big deal. They don't even want to acknowledge it. And I think that's ridiculous. If anything, anywhere else was having a 40% or greater failure rate, trying to turn your car on, right? If, if your vehicle or your cell phone didn't work four times out of 10, two times out of five that you tried it, you would go berserk. And you would do everything you could to make sure that it got fixed. The SmallSat Process Engineering Department at Cold Star Technologies is all about showing you how to manage processes better, to eliminate the causes at the root that create these partial and full mission failure rates. And you don't need to hear it from me. You can look this stuff up in studies. It just comes out of what you might think are the dumbest things. Oh, I know that. Well, to know but not to do means you don't know it. You rush you rush the production schedule, you don't manage it right, you don't have the project sponsorship set up quite right, and the resources aren't there. You've got this mission launch date that's moving, and you just throw the schedule out the window. One-third to one-half of your project schedule needs to be for testing. And yet, this is the first thing to get smashed in the head by a wrench. As soon as the monkey wrench is thrown into the operation, testing time goes out the window. Do you want to avoid this problem? The answer is not more physical engineering. It's not. More engineers are not going to solve your problem. You have tons of engineers. I am not going to tell you how to engineer a satellite. <laughs> I've got Dr. Rick Fleeter and other people on my team for that. And we're not going to come in there and tell you how to engineer it. But on the process side, and I have had engineers on this show say, engineers don't know nothing about processes. That's not me saying it, it's the engineers saying it, but I will definitely echo it. If you want to have a manufacturing process that ensures that your small sets, cube sets, get up there and work, come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. The problem with the framework of what I think people are trying to do and the thing that kind of aggravates me is that we want to have this old paradigm application of the centralized computer that you, this, this master computer, the wizard computer that knows everything and you know, tells everybody to do things and nobody else has to know what they're doing. I think it's the other way around. I think we got to put <clears throat> control in the cockpit where the operators are actually actively managing their space assets and they're in control of it. It's their responsibility. They collect all the data. They do the collision uh, analysis. They get the data from all of the sources they get it from, but it's their responsibility to make sure that their satellites 
are reporting their position actively so that we don't have to go up and track it with radar, mm. right? They tell us where it is and then be responsible to coordinate with other people. It's, it's, it's absolutely anathema for two operating satellites to need space traffic management. No two operating satellites should ever be assigned or allowed to be in any point where they're going to intersect. Hmm. Right? I mean, it's like two airplanes landing on the same runway. That's a failure of ATC. Hmm. It's a massive failure of ATC for two airplanes to be approaching the same runway at the same time. You can't even think of it. It's like, that's like a complete failure, but two operating spacecraft coming together and needing to coordinate, avoiding a collision, that should be equally, uh, distasteful in, in our control world. Hmm. Well, that is going to take some paradigm shifting and some new tools. I mean, we could clearly see that. They're going to need more uh, data gathering and reporting and sharing tools, right, that, uh, yes. that maybe are not really existing yet uh, today. So what kind of other bottlenecks do we have on space traffic management? Um, you know, what's going on that is stopping us or, or slowing us down from developing these capabilities? Well, I think that the, the, the idea that, uh, that operators are going to launch into uh, orbit and then just look at their mission and, and not have to contribute in any way to the space surveillance network that mm -hmm. has to grow. Right now, it is not scalable at mm -hmm. the moment. And, they, and Leo Labs is doing what they can do, but they need customers paying them to continue building out their network. Uh, the military needs more resources. I mean, we need pervasive monitoring of near-Earth orbit in order to track what's, what's up there and predict collisions more accurately, but also to keep track of debris-on-debris -debris collisions. We need to put mm -hmm. sensors on these, on these potential collisions. Uh, two satellites recently nearly collided over Philadelphia. It was a big thing. And, uh, and you know, we needed sensors on that. So people say, well, we didn't see any debris after the fact, so therefore we conclude they didn't collide. But if you were tracking them actively, I mean, we know how to do this because we know how to intercept things. I mean, many countries have done ASAT tests already. So if things are actively being tracked, we'll know whether they collide or not. So we need more pervasive monitoring space in order to know what the real risks are. And, and you can kind of look at it and say, okay, so the more frequently I sample a position of something in space, uh, the, the better known its position, the better known its position, mm -hmm. the more accurate I can predict collisions, the lower the false alarm rate will be for potential collisions. So obviously I need more observations, both from space platforms and earth-based platforms, both radar and optical. And, and we need to grow that network. And the way to grow that network is to make it scalable by making operators pay for their share of it. Mm -hmm. Now they don't want to do that because it's been a service provided to them and space was big. Hmm. You know, space isn't big anymore. And so they've got to bring that, they got to bring their share of the burden to the space surveillance network and pay for that service. And we need to provide data on all objects in space, not just operating spacecraft. So as I said in my previous podcast with you is that, you know, as we, as we require the operators to provide ephemeris, the orbital data on all their objects, whether they're operating or not, the 25 year rule will kind of go away because they don't want to pay for it to be monitored and, the, and their ephemeris to be reported on for that whole lifetime. So uh, the space surveillance network needs to grow. Space situational awareness needs to grow by making people responsible for their own space objects. And, and then I think you'll see that um, we'll, we'll have a better handle on all of it going forward. Huh. <laughs> now, now I'm like, okay, well, what's going to be the triggering event to make these folks change their mind and adopt it, the new paradigm, right? And realize, okay, we do need to be investing in this. Is there going to have to be some big disaster 
for them to, to change their minds? You would hope that Iridium Cosmos might have been the trigger. And I think it stimulated a lot of conversation. And, uh, but, but the result of it is that these are big problems with lots of money. It's like debris remediation. Um, to go up there and remove something is, is prohibitively expensive. And uh, so we're kind of stuck with the environment we have and we're not ready to spend the money to go and fix it. Um, and this is the problem with the other problem with this space situational awareness is we can build this exquisite uh, space surveillance network with this incredible understanding of space situational awareness. And without any kind of remediation, we may just sit there with great witnesses of this exquisite decay of our Earth environment because we're not doing anything to remediate um, the debris. So uh, it, we can't spend all of our money in, in the space surveillance basket, so to speak, without spending money on remediation. So I'll, I'll continue to harp on debris remediation um, <laughs> constantly to, to fix that. Right, right. Well, and, and what do we need for that? Some sort of court system or? It, it's, it's, it's unimaginable right now <laughs> to see what forum there might be yeah. um, to, to limit the, uh, you know, we've got this first mover advantage uh, thing going on where, where SpaceX and others are, are able to do these large distributed systems and basically foreclosing anybody from using those orbits mm -hmm. um, in the future. And, and so these emerging um, economies who are looking to do that are, are not going to be able to use these orbits um, or share these orbits. And so I'm not sure whether the UN or COPUS or, or what body is going to be available for mm -hmm. people to you know, seek any kind of a remedy for, for the, the loss of the commons, so to speak, of, of near Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. Okay, it might be time to have a few of the space lawyers I know back on. <laughs> Maybe a panel to discuss that. Uh, Probably a good idea. I, I don't know how we unravel that. It's a, yeah. it's a very complicated issue and, and one that you know, goes to sovereignty and, and independence mm -hmm. of operation and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think these are really uh, crucial issues. And normally they've been solved uh, through conflict. You know, the result, mm -hmm. we resolve a conflict and then we all agree, okay, we're gonna play nice in this area. And, and here's the rules we're going to ascribe to. And, 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 and we have the guidelines now. It took 10 years to get just guidelines. Um, I joke that, you know, we're going to upgrade them to strong suggestions and, um, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, you know, the real question is, is, you know, in the next 20 or 30 years, um, how are we going to manage our use of near-Earth space considering all of what people were talking about with how we're going to space and, and things going up and down? Uh, mm -hmm. as we recover things from, you know, lunar orbit or materials right. from space, that sort of thing. <clears throat> right, right. And we're going to, yeah, all that cislunar space is going to start filling up too, I'm sure. So where can people find out more about these issues or talk to you, Michael? Well, I'm at uh, satdfr.org. Uh, my name is uh, Mike Maloney, so you can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn. And, yeah. um, you know, one, one thing is uh, I want to say that mm -hmm. um, we, we need to, of course, mitigate debris and that means we need to go to payloads only in orbit no more no more launch debris nothing left in orbit that isn't operating and i don't know how we get there that's probably the first step uh to this okay. whole thing is to stop putting things up there that we need to track and dodge um and then work on getting the stuff down that's up there that we can remove uh to make orbit uh, a little bit cleaner a little safer right well, guys like Gordon Ressler of Robots in Space, they're looking at ways to grab this stuff and take it somewhere. And I do want to remind our uh, listeners and viewers that just because something is falling back into the atmosphere 
uh, it doesn't necessarily burn up. That, that's a myth that's been propagated, but there's no real proof of that. There's still studies being done as to what happens to a debris field as it comes through the atmosphere. It could still come down and kill people. So well, I, read a, I read a fascinating paper looking at the cumulative risk of uh, mm. potential damage to aircraft from debris falling from, from mm. space. And looking at the number of airplanes flying around, less so today than than, than we were doing a couple Two of weeks ago. ago. Yeah. yeah, but uh, but you know the number of airplanes that are flying around. You think it's not just debris on the ground. It's there's objects up there flying around as well. So, um, right. you know, there's some big risks up there that possibly could happen from a lot of debris falling. Huh. Well, this has been very interesting. Uh, hopefully, not too depressing. It, it uh, makes you want to advocate more for this stuff. So I appreciate you being out there. My guest has been Michael Maloney. He is the founder of. Uh, satellites design, satellite design for recovery, design and for recovery. Uh, I think yeah, there's a website for it. I have been there. <laughs> and, yes. uh, good, good info there. Thanks for being here, Michael. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate the time. This is Jason Canningham from Cold Star Tech. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do want to get email notifications of upcoming episodes or episodes that have just been released, and maybe a little news sprinkled in here and there, you can sign up for email notifications at coldstartech.com slash MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring. That's another little show that I do. It's uh, once, twice, three times a week, something like that. Anytime there's news or uh, an update on who I'm meeting and, and what I'm uh, studying in the space field. So you can go check that out. On the YouTube channel, I can do something that I cannot do on uh, Anchor for the audio-only side of things. The YouTube channel allows me to have playlists, and so you might want to go to the channel, the Cold Star Tech channel, and check out those playlists because you will find, you can go down a rabbit hole basically into several areas like space law and policy, uh, small sats, and I think that's a lot easier than trying to scroll through 130 episodes or something like that, (laughs) looking for the thing that you want, so I recommend going and checking that out. And remember, if you're ready to take your space business to the next level or you're a VC looking for a deep and very valuable insight into a space company, you're looking at investing in or investing further in, come and talk to us. Thanks for listening. 